Well, turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we're continuing, of course, our study of the book of Revelation, and it's the revelation that God gave to, basically, to, to uh, Jesus, and Jesus ended up giving it to John, and John wrote it to the seven churches, and then we have the book, and so there's a lot there. When we think about this book, it's just incredible, because we're going to see, and we're seeing the, the beginning of these letters, and then after that, we're going to be taken up into heaven, and we're going to see what it is like in heaven when people say, oh, I'd like to go to heaven. What's it going to be like? What's it like there? And then we're going to see the tribulation time period and a man called the beast that rises up out of the sea and a false prophet and the the seven-year tribulation time period, all those things. It's all in the book. And then we'll see Jesus' second coming, how he comes and sets up a kingdom and rules for a thousand years. And oh, there's just so much that we're going to see in this book. Uh, We're looking now at the seven letters and they were written to seven literal churches. They existed. And this morning, we've already seen a few of them. We're now seeing the fifth and the sixth letter. This is the Church of Sardis. It's called the Dying Church or the Dead Church. We'll talk more about that. And then the sixth is the Philadelphia Church, which is called the Faithful Church. As we study these letters, there's, uh, we're just going to be able to see what we can make application out of. And I want to remind you of something. At the very end, it, it gives a promise and it basically says, whoever's faithful, whoever overcomes, comes, and you see that in every letter, there's different things there, and of course, they're all for all of us who know Jesus Christ, who seek to be an overcomer, which means to be a faithful believer. We'll talk more about that. You remember early uh, in Jesus' ministry that uh, some Pharisees came to him, and they were basically talking to him and getting on him, and in chapter 23, uh, Jesus talks about it and he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you appear beautiful on the outside like a tomb. Some of those tombs, they were beautiful white on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones. And he said to the Pharisees, you look good on the outside, but you're actually dead on the inside. And when he writes this letter to the, the third le- the, uh, chapter 3, the letter to the church of Sardis, he calls them dead. And he says, you look like you're alive on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through that. They, they look like a healthy church. They look growing. They were doing all kinds of different things. And, and yet, you've got to be careful because sometimes you'll see a church and they've got all these activities going and they've got all these things going. And yet, the, the Bible isn't taught. There's not much happening there. We'll, we'll talk more about it as we go through it. Let me remind you of the churches we've seen, the church at Ephesus, that had left their first love. We've got to be real careful. They were doing everything right, but they were doing it out of duty rather than the love for Jesus Christ. And it's real easy to do that, especially a church like ours, a Bible-type church, holds to the Scripture, tries to do everything, hold to the Bible, that kind of thing. Then there was the Smyrna church, which was the suffering church. And, they, and you know, there are churches in the world today that are suffering in the same way they did. And then there's Pergamum, the compromising church. Church. They had false teaching in the church, and they didn't do anything about it. They were compromising. Then the church at Thyatira was the tolerating church. They actually had a woman in that church who pretended, who said she was a prophet of God, and they listened to her, and she led them into adultery, led them into idolatry, led them into sexual sin, all those kind of things. So we have been seeing that, and we're now coming to the, the fifth church, which is the Sardis church, the dying church, or sometimes even called the dead church. Realize that churches do die. Sometimes they're still meeting, but they're dead. We don't understand that. And this is a church that he says, you look alive, but you're dead. And, and so sometimes we look at a, at a church and you say, well, that looks like a really vibrant type church or things are going good there. No, and they're not really. So let's talk for a minute. What, what about a church? What are we supposed to do? And we, we think about our purpose is to make disciples and the plan is to equip the believers to do the ministry and the process. What is the process? We call it scattered, uh, gathered and scattered. We gather for worship and training. Like this morning, we've gathered to worship Jesus Christ as we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we study, and to be trained and equipped from the Bible. Then we scatter out 
out in the community taking the great message of Jesus Christ, the message that Jesus died and rose again, and whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. They believe in him for everlasting life, and this earth. So we see those kind of things. So sometimes people have a lot of events or activities or things going on, but as Jesus says in this passage, uh, they're dead. And so if you remember, there are the six things that are found in these, each of these churches. There's a designation, which is the church, description of Jesus, a commendation, a condemnation, exhortation, and a promise. In this particular church, there is no commendation. And we've seen that already, and one thing's we, and so we'll see how that goes. Let's start with the destination. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now, he's writing to the church at Sardis. The angel appears to be the, the leader of the church. Some people say that each one of these churches had an angel over them, but, uh, but the word angelos in Greek actually just means messenger. I think he's writing to the leaders of each of these churches, and he's giving them this information. So he's writing to the church at Sardis. Uh, let me give you, remind you that we've been seeing it. Everything's in a circle. It started with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now we're down to Sardis. We'll also look at Philadelphia, and next week we'll finish it out by looking at Laodicea. So he's made that circle as he talks about them, and so he writes to the angel of the church in Sardis. And this was a smaller church. In that, in that it was famous for wealth. It was a wealthy, a really wealthy city. Uh, the church was there. That that city. Worship the emperor. They also had a temple to Diana. Her also name was Artemis. Uh, Ephesus had a temple to Diana. They had one. And so they were right in. This church was small. It was in the middle of a pagan city and a pagan nation. And you could look at it and say, we're, you know, as a whole, uh, the country, our country is moving really pagan in that sense. And so how does this church, what's going on with them? They're in the middle of a pagan place. And so he goes on and says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars said, so he gives the description of Jesus. We saw that the seven spirits of God, we saw that at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, that the Holy Spirit sometimes is called the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit. And if you go back to the book of Isaiah and chapter 1, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, he actually gives you seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we think is when he's saying who has the seven spirits of God, the seven aspects of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then he also says, and the seven stars. And you remember that the description of Jesus, he has these seven stars in his hand. The stars were the angels of the churches of the leaders. And what it's showing is that he's at the beginning, he's saying, I have the authority. Jesus has the authority. He oversees the churches. He's the head. He's everything. And so that's how he starts off. Now, number three normally is a commendation, but there is no commendation. He doesn't say, here's what you're doing right. Now, what we would hope, if, what, if, what if God wrote us a letter? You know, it would be to the church, and he would say this. What, what would he say? Would there be a commendation? Would there be condemnation? What would he say to us? Well, he's saying to this church, and, and they're getting this letter, and there is no con- commendation. He's not saying, boy, y'all are doing great. In fact, he moves straight to the condemnation. Look what he says. Verse, again, in verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says to you, I know your deeds. Now, this is what he says in every letter. I know your deeds. He knows everything. He knows everything about our church. He knows everything about these seven churches then. He knows every aspect of us, each individually and in a local church. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. He says, they, everybody says you're alive. That's how you, you think, that, that you've got this name. You're called alive, but you're actually dead. 
And outwardly, they look good. Others might say that they're an active church, they're alive, their things are going on. But he would say, outside you look alive, but inside you're dead or dying. And many times, churches look good on the outside, and they have a lot of events and a lot of activities, but they're really dead. They may be filled with activities and people and programs. I mean, I know churches that have a lot of activities going, but they don't teach the Bible at all. They don't even use the Bible. I know churches that have all kind of events going on, but they have no clear message at all. You don't know what the salvation message is. I had a friend that went to a conference at a very huge church in in the United States, and he went to the conference, and the church was putting on the conference. He decided instead of going to all the meetings, he went to the staff of this church, and he asked the simple question, what do you believe is the salvation message? And he talked to nine staff members, and none of them had the same message. And none of the messages were believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. This is one of the biggest churches in the United States, putting on a big Bible conference. Everybody there. And he asked them, what do you think the salvation message is? And none of them said faith alone in Christ alone for eternal life. And none of them had the same message. So it can look really good, but not necessarily be doing what God wants them to do. And so they could be, as he says here, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. John Walford, the president of Dallas Seminary, when I was there, he said, the church at Sardis is very much like many modern churches, full of activities, but very little that speaks of Christ and spiritual life and power. So, so many churches are really going through the activities, but are actually dying or dead on the inside. What are we supposed to be like? Have you ever thought about this? The church should be alive because it's made up of us who are living stones. First Peter 2, 4 and 5 says each one of us are living stones, helping build up to a, to a holy temple, so to speak. And then every one of us is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians six nineteen and 20. So what do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is in you. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. So the bottom line is, we should, the, the church should be alive, should be exciting. Uh, I mean, that's what it should be. So now he, he started off and he says, to the church, the one who has the seven stars and seven spirits, I write to you, and here's what I find. I find you're dead. I find you're dead. So what are you going to have to do? What do they need to do? Is it too late? If a church is dead, can it wake up? If a church is dead, can it come back and be a good church? Can it do what God wants them to do? Well, look at the start of verse 2. What does he say? Wake up. It's possible. In fact, we're going to see the exhortation, what they need to do, and how to deal with the problem. There are five things that he tells us. The first one is this. Wake up. Come up out of your sleep. First, acknowledge you have a problem. The problem isn't in all your activities and events. It's the fact that you've left the Bible. You've left the truth. You're not doing anything. You're going through the motion. So he says, wake up. And the idea of wake up is acknowledge that there's a problem. The second thing says, strengthen the things that remain. That means to edify, to build up. The word strengthen there has that idea of edifying one another, building up one another. He says you need to get back to the idea that the goal of this local church, purpose is to make disciples, but how do you do that? You equip the believers to do the ministry to build up the body of Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. So he says strengthen the things that remain. That's the idea of edifying one another. And then he gives a third thing. Notice, let me go a little further back in verse 2 again. He says strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. He says, it's all about to die. The whole thing's about, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. He said, you're not doing what I asked you to do. You're not doing what a church is supposed to do. And to be honest with you, you might, you might talk to people and you might ask them, what is a church supposed to do? 
And most of them don't know. We all know that the purpose of a local body is to make disciples, leading people to Christ and training them, equipping them. And then, how do you do that? You equip the believers to do the work of the ministry, build up the body of Christ as you gather and scatter. But most, a lot of people don't know that. A lot of churches don't know that. He says to them, You've, I've not found your deeds complete in the, in the sight of my God. He said, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. So then he takes them to the third thing. So he says, remember what you've received and heard. Notice, so remember what you have received and heard. What he's actually saying is, go back to the teaching. Go back to what you heard. Go back what was taught to you at the very beginning. The truth from God's word. The clear message of salvation. I think that the church as a whole has moved away from the salvation message. And then that, that most churches think what you're supposed to do is give the salvation message. They forget all about discipleship. But the problem is their salvation message is confused. So what we need is a grace, clear salvation message, and then making disciples, helping people grow. He says, get back. Remember what you were taught. Remember what the truths of the Bible are. That was the third thing that he says, do that. So remember what you have received and heard. And then he gives the fourth one, which is keep it. It means obey it. Keep the word. Obey the word. It's one thing to know the Bible. It's another thing to, 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 uh, to do it. And we want to do the word. We want to live out the word. And, and that's what he's telling them to do. And then finally, he uses this word. He says repent. People get confused about the word repent. Um, it's never, never used for the issue of salvation, by the way. I want you to understand that. Salvation is always faith in Christ for eternal life. It's not repent of sins. In fact, you won't find that in Scripture. If you find it in Scripture, you've got a mis- uh, uh, interpretation of mistranslation, uh, like the NLT. Let me, I'll just say y'all fly. The New Living Translation takes the word repent, which means change your mind, and they translate it, turn from sin every time. That's wrong. Uh, I, I would recommend that you, if you want to have the NLT, use it for reading only, but don't use it for studying whatsoever. So the word repent has an idea of change your mind, change their attitude, get back to doing what they're supposed to do. Realize that they, they need to see things that were wrong. So what does he tell them? He says, first of all, wake up, acknowledge your problems, strengthen the things that remain, equip each other, um, remember what you're supposed to know and learn, that's the Bible, then keep it, and then repent. And, and therefore, he says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I'm giving you a chance. I will come like a thief, and you will not know what the hour that will come. This is the truth of any issue in Scripture or in any truth in, the Bible, in a church. First of all, we need to acknowledge there's a problem. We need to build up one another. We need to get back to the Word. We need to live by the Word. And we need to change how the church views this issue or this problem. And that's what he's telling them to do. And what does he say if you don't do it? If not, Jesus is going to come to judge. I mean, notice the end of verse 3 again. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Well, you know that church is not there today. What happened to it? Who knows? Maybe there's the judgment. Who knows? And then he says something that's really positive, verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Wow. Wow. So he says, there's a few people in Sardis who have not, that, 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 there's one, and they're gonna, they're gonna, there's those who have not fallen into this sin, those who have not messed up. They'll maintain their fellowship with Jesus Christ. So he says, there's some in there, in this whole church. And you know, there's a great truth. You can, you can look at churches that, some of them that don't even teach the Bible, that don't have anything, there still may be some faithful believers in that body. 
I knew a friend that, uh, I had a friend that went to a church that they, did, they actually said they don't believe the Bible. And the pastor didn't teach the Bible. And I talked to him, and he said, oh, I believe the Bible, and I've trusted Christ, believed in Jesus for eternal life and everything. I said, why do you go to that church? He says, well, my daddy went to that church, and my granddaddy went to that church, so I'm going to always go to that church. So I'd call him a, a believer and maybe even a faithful believer, but he's in the midst of nothing. And so in the midst of this church at Sardis, he says, there are a few people there who have not sold their garments, not got into sin, and they will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. The idea of white garments, we're going to see it more in just a minute. There's two aspects of white garments in the Bible. Some places where it talks about white garments, it's talking about righteousness, which you get by faith. And then there's other places when it talks about white garments, it's actually talking about righteous works, righteous deeds. So I'm not sure which way, it, it seems to me here he's dealing with rewards, because when you go to the, the fifth thing, which is his promise, and the promises to all faithful believers, look what he says, he who overcomes, by the way, in 1 John, an overcomer is a believer. In the book of Revelation, an overcomer is a faithful believer. So remember that. When you see he who overcomes as a person who is victorious, who lives righteously, who does all the right things, he says this, he who overcomes will be clothed, look, in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. So he actually does three things. First of all, he says, I'll have you white garments. And I think if you look carefully in Revelation chapter 7, the white garments is a combination. Sometimes it's just those who are believers, and sometimes it's those who get rewards. I think since he's talking about overcomers here, that I think the white garments are the righteous saints, uh, righteous believers, and that they're living righteously and doing the things that they're supposed to do. The next thing is the one that bothers a little people, is, uh, sometimes bothers people a little bit. I'm not erase your name from the book of life. We know that once your name is in the book of life, it can't be erased. I think what he's doing is called a hyperbole statement. He's saying, even though you're dead, even though you're not doing what's right, your name will never be erased from the book of life because it can't be. The book of life, the way you get your name in the book of life is to believe. We're going to see toward the end of the book of Revelation that there are books of deeds that are opened. And then there is the book of life which is opened. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast in the lake of fire. The only way you can get into the book of life is by believing in Christ for eternal life. That's why he calls it eternal life. You get life. So he says, don't worry, you'll never be out of the book of life. And I'll, Jesus will confess their name before the Father. People are confused. I've had people say, you need to confess Jesus to be saved. No, confessing Jesus is serving him. You need to believe in Jesus for eternal life to be saved. But confession is saying, I, you know, because he says, if you confess me, I'll confess you. If you don't confess me, I won't confess you. He's talking about rewards. And so to these overcomers, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's the idea that they will get rewards. Back in Matthew chapter 10, he talks about confession brings rewards. So three things. They get white garments. They're in the book of life forever, of course. And that if they confess, they will be rewarded. Wow. That's to a church that's called dead. That's to a church that's dying. That's a church that he says, you need to wake up. And if you don't, it'll be too late. And he says, but those who overcome, you're going to get this. Wow. Uh, I would say, I'll be real honest with you, I don't think that's us at all. 
At some of the churches, possibly the very first church, we, we could be very simply a Bible church that's just going through the motions and we're doing everything right. We're not the suffering church. I don't think we have false teaching in our church. I don't think we're tolerant of sin in our church. Uh, I don't think we're this church because I don't think we're dead. I think we're alive. I think we study the Bible and I think we hold to the truth. Uh, this next church we're going to see, the Church of Philadelphia, I hope that's our church. Okay? Let's look at Church of Philadelphia. It's called the Faithful Church. So see, what do you think? Is this us? We've already seen the left, their first love church, the suffering church, the compromising church, the tolerating church, the dying church, and now the Philadelphia. We call it the Church of the Open Door Church, and it's called the Faithful Church. And we'll talk more about why it says that. But let's start with verse 7. Here's the, the designation, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. So where is this church? Here we are. We've seen the big circle and we're now down to here. We got one more church after this. That'll be next week. And that's the church at Philadelphia. Where is that? We get Philadelphia. It comes from two Greek words. Phileo means love, and Adelphos is brother. So Phileo Adelphos, Philadelphia, is brother to love, or to love the brother. That's why Philadelphia, in the United States, everybody calls it the city of brotherly love. That's what the name means. And so, it, by the way, it was a, it was a very young city. It was formed originally in 160 BC. And in AD 17, uh, there was an earthquake that just destroyed a lot of it and they built it back. And so what that, they started in the church. And now look at the description of Jesus. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. And so he tells Jesus, he says he's holy. And I'm going to go a little quick through this just because we can get it. Jesus is holy. He's the holy one. You know, people talk about the holy Bible. All that means is the set apart book. Jesus is holy. He is set apart. He's set apart from his creation. He is holy and righteous and just and perfect. He has no sin whatsoever. And he's set apart holy from his creation. He's not part of the creation. He created it all. And so Jesus is the holy one. Second, he's the true one. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So he's the true one. Whatever Jesus says is true. That's why every promise that he gives comes true. Everything that he says comes true. And then he says, I have the key of David. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the, is the, the key means he has something to unlock a door. That's what a key is. The key of David. David the, is, the, is the greater son that, that, you know, has a greater son who is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is a descendant of David. He's saying, I got the key of David. And notice what he says. This key who, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one can open. What are you saying there? I got all authority. I open it up and I shut it. And sometimes when we think about opening and shutting, we're talking about opportunities he, I open it up, a great opportunity. Paul one time said, I, I, there is a great, op a door is open for me of a great opportunity. So he says, Jesus is the one that opens doors and closes doors. Well, let's see what he's going to say about him. And it's a uh, commendation. He said, I know your deeds. Look again at verse 8. I know your deeds. And he knows it all. And he's faithful. Look what he goes on to say. I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and kept my word, and I'm not denying my name. Now, I'm going to go back, and he says, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. He's saying, I've got a ministry for this church, and we're going to see why in a minute, because they're faithful. He says, nobody can shut it. Nobody can stop it. And we could think about, what is... What would be an open door of ministry in our community for us? I think it would be presenting a clear message of salvation. 
Most people in our town don't understand that salvation is a gift by faith alone in Christ alone and that you believe in Jesus for eternal life. Most people don't believe that. Most people have never heard that. Most people are confused about it. They're told to repent of their sins and give their life to Jesus and walk down an aisle and do all these things. They have never heard, believe in Christ for eternal life and you have eternal life. And, and so maybe our open door for our church is to be really clear as we proclaim the message in this in this community. He says something that, uh, that is funny. He says, I put an open door that nobody can shut. And then he says something about them. He says three things. You have little power. You've kept my word. And you've not denied his name or denied you know, his name. Notice again in verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I put an open door which nobody can shut. Because, watch, you have a little power. And you kept my word. And you not deny my name. Well, when you first look at that, you go, oh, that's sad. They have a little power. No. But it's a positive thing. You know what he's saying? You have little power because you're dependent on the big power. You're not dependent on yourself, little power. You're dependent on me. You have a little power. You recognize that it's not your strength. And then he says, you've kept my word. You've lived according to the Bible. Isn't that the thing that we all want to hear him to say to us? You've kept my word. You've lived by the scripture. You did what was, was right. And then the third thing, you've not denied my name. It's very easy in a pagan society and in a fallen world to not live for Jesus Christ, to not take a stand for Christ, to not say, Lord, I want my life to count for you. Let me tell you, you go someplace and you say you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation and it's faith alone, Christ alone for eternal life. They're going to attack you. In a fallen world, you're going to be attacked not only by the unbelievers, you'll be attacked by some believers who think salvation is more than faith in Christ for eternal life. He says, you have, you have a little power because you know the big power. You've kept my word. You live by the Bible, and you've not denied my name. And then he, he, um, he then, he, he, that's real positive. And then he does this. He says, I'm, this is encouragement to the church. There's going to be victory. Look what he says. Verse 9, behold, I cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and they're not, and then they lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, we're not sure all what that means because the synagogue of Satan, most believe the synagogue of Satan was false worship and the worship of Diana and, and uh, Artemis and all of that there. And so he's saying, those people are opposed to you, and I will cause them one day to come bow down to you. And, and that's going to happen. And he says, and those who say they're Jews and they're not, there were also synagogues there of Jewish people who say, oh, we, we worship the true God, but they didn't. And so he's basically saying, listen, one of these days there's going to be victory because every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And then verse 10 is a key. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What in the world could that be? That's the tribulation. I will keep you from the hour of the trial. He's, he says, you will not go through the tribulation. Tribulations come upon the entire world. In fact, he literally says, I will take you out from the testing. And we all know that one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to take us off the face of the earth. It's called the rapture. It's from the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch away. And we're going to be gone. And then on the earth, there will be a seven-year tribulation. We're going to see this all in the book of Revelation. We're going to see the tribulation time period. 
And so we know that 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ rise first, we who are alive and remain be caught up together with him. 1 Thessalonians, there'll be the church taken out and then the, the Antichrist come. Daniel 9 talks about the tribulation, Revelation chapters 4 through 19, Revelation 3.10. It talks about the fact that God is going to take this church take and take the church out. Notice this, and we've seen this many, many times, that when Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again, we're in the church age now. These letters were written right there very early. We're way down the road. He could come at any second, and when he comes, we're going to be taken off the face of the earth. There'll be a moment, the twinkle of an eye will be gone. Listen, I want you to understand, when Jesus comes in the clouds, nobody's going to see him. It's going to happen in a twinkle of an eye, we're going to be gone just like this. When he comes the second time as the King of kings and Lord of lords, every knee will bow. Everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. So the first time when he comes in the, in the clouds to get us, nobody will see him. It'll happen just like that. We'll all be gone. When he comes right there, everyone will see him. And so he says to the church, don't worry. I'm going to take you out from this time of testing. And then he says something. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He says, I'm coming quickly. I mean, suddenly, some people say, well, he can't be coming quickly. That, that, that book was written 2,000 years ago. When he says quickly, he doesn't mean right then. He means when he comes, he comes fast. And when he comes to get us, it's going to be just like that. We're gone. He's coming quickly. And that's what he's talking about. And so he says, now, he gives the promises. This is the overcomers. Look what he says. To he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Now, if you look at this carefully, you're going to see something. He says, you'll be a pillar. Faithful believers are a pillar in the temple of God. During the thousand-year reign of Christ, there'll be a temple. He'll say, he's basically saying, you can have position and service in the temple in the thousand years. He said, that's faithful believers. And then he says this, I'm going to write you three things. I'm going to write, notice what he says. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And he says what it is. This is the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven. So he says, I'm going to write on that, on the believer, the name of God. What's going to be the name? What's God's name? Is it YHWH, Yahweh? Is it Elohim? Is it Theos? Is it Kyrios? Those are all the Greek names and Hebrew names. Is it El Shaddai? What, what's going to be the name? He didn't tell us. And then he says, I'm going to write the name of the city, and that's the New Jerusalem, and we're going to get to it in Revelation 21. We're going to see this city come down. And he says, I'm going to write that, which comes down, notice, which comes down out of heaven. And then, look carefully, and my new name. New name of Jesus. What's his name? What's the new name? Revelation 19, 12, it says that he has a name written that nobody knows. Maybe someday he says, well, I'm now going to show you my new name. I don't know. I mean, we know his name. Jesus means Savior. Yes, you are. So what is going to be the new name? But he says, faithful believers, guess what? If you're faithful, guess what? You're going to get to know the new name. Wow. And so he says, by, listen, listen carefully. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, and notice it's plural, the churches. It's not just the one church. It's not just the seven churches. It's all of the churches that we look at this, we read it, we understand it. And so what do we see? Well, we see, wow, that this is the church of the open door, that he's sovereign and true, that he's going to come, he's going to deliver them out from the tribulation, and, and then he promises them great security uh, and all of these. And he says, and listen to what I say. So let me give you uh, some applications. Let's realize that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. When you see a church like the, the, the church uh, that you know, was dead, when you, when you look at that church of Sardis and you go, wow, they look good. He said, you look good. You look like you're alive, but you're actually dead. You're dying. And some churches look so good. Listen, there's a church that I know that looks really good. There's 25,000 come every Sunday. 25,000 every Sunday. But I've watched his messages. He never uses the Bible. Never uses the scripture. So you may say, boy, that looks good. You look good on the outside, but what are they like on the inside? I don't Make sure we're doing the right things, equipping one another, worshiping, sharing, doing all those things. B, deal with problems. That's what that first church had to do. They had to acknowledge the fact, you know, and they had to build each other up. They had to remember the word of God. They had to keep the word of God. And then they had to change their minds so they wouldn't fall back again. He said, it's not too late. Wake up. But if you don't wake up, I'll come and I will deal with you. Let's be faithful to live for Jesus Christ in the midst of a pagan world. It, we need to say we have little power. It's his power, not us. That's why I love the song we sang about, uh, you know, that it's Christ in me, not me, but Christ that lives in me. It's not our power, it's his power. And that's what he said to those believers. He said, it's, you got a little power, but you've kept the word, and you stand for Jesus Christ. So it's, it's incredible. The second application, let's understand that God will deliver the church age believers from the tribulation. We see it all throughout the Bible. He mentions it here in 310, but if you really want to look at it, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 17. He really is clear there. Also 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All of those have those passages in some other places as well. Um, this is the drawing, and here we are, and it could be any second. And he's going to come. And we're not going through that. I know people who'll say, I've said people say to me, I just don't want to go through the tribulation. Uh, I said, you're in the church age. You have believed in Christ for eternal life. You are saved. You will never go through the tribulation because Jesus is going to come take the church off the face of the earth. And then what's left. And by the way, this final seven years, it's for Israel. We'll talk about it more when we get, when we get into the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about why, why is it seven years? Why is it seven years long? And who is it for? And why does God bring that judgment on the earth? And why is there an antichrist? Why is there a false prophet? Why are those kind of things? We'll see it as we go through it. Just remember, God will reward faithful believers. That's what we see in this passage as well.